0: I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church again. Happy Labor Day weekend. Several weeks ago, the news was dominated by the events in Charlottesville, Virginia. White supremacists marched through the city's streets, many wearing KKK garb, holding torches and weapons and shouting insults about Jewish people and racial minorities. Counter protesters assembled as well, and the tension between the two groups culminated in violence. Many people were injured and one counter-protester was killed. Now, in the immediate aftermath of that event, lots of Christian churches and organizations and leaders issued public statements condemning the violence and condemning the white supremacist movement that started the whole chain of events. Prairie View did not issue any formal statement. We simply made some short comments about it that following Sunday and included it in our time of prayer. Now, that wasn't because we didn't care about the events the day before. They were certainly newsworthy. It was mostly because we knew today's sermon topic was on the horizon. Way back near the end of 2016, I began working on my preaching calendar for 2017. And long before the events in Charlottesville... The topic of race was on the agenda for Sunday, September 3rd. Why? Because racism is sin. And the events in Charlottesville tell us that racism is not just some sin from the past. It is a sin that is alive and well in our day and age. Theologian Karl Barth once wrote that preachers should always have a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. And his point was that we should be students not only of God's word, but students of what's happening in the world in which we live. And racial division is a major topic in the news these days. And the Bible certainly has something to say about it. So here we are. But before we go any further, allow me to put a few things out on the table. Number one, if you haven't already noticed, I'm a white male. And on top of that, I'm a white male who's lived what many would call a charmed life. Compared to most people in this world, my life has been remarkably easy. So try as I might, I have little to no understanding of what it's like to be anything other than a white male. And because of that, some would argue that I am the last person to have any wisdom on this topic and shouldn't even dare speak about it. And to be honest, I can kind of see their point. However, I'm also the pastor of this church, and as we mentioned a few moments ago, I believe I have a responsibility to preach what the Bible says about the issues we encounter in this world. So here I am getting ready to speak on a topic that I don't claim to be an expert about. I don't have all the answers to these incredibly complex problems, and if you feel that I'm an inadequate messenger to speak about this, well, you may be right. And I simply ask that you show me grace as I attempt to help us all better understand what scripture might have to say. But then another thing to put out on the table is this. I will not be attempting to address the finer points of racial division in America. I'm unexperienced and incompetent in many of the areas that this conversation often shifts towards. I'm not an expert when it comes to immigration policy or systemic poverty or the criminal justice system or the education field or confederate monuments. Sure, I might have some opinions on some of those things, but they are fallible and imperfect opinions. And I don't believe God has called me to preach those opinions from this pulpit. And then finally, one more thing to put out on the table is that while I don't know what it's like to be anything other than white, I haven't been totally sheltered from the sin of racism. And much of that comes from my background. I spent half of my life in Memphis, Tennessee, and nearly all of my family still lives there. I have parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, who grew up in ground zero of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. One member of my family was... A Memphis police officer for decades, several other members of my family went to the University of Mississippi, a hotbed of racial strife at the time. Some of my family went to Ole Miss around the same time as James Meredith, the first black man ever admitted to Ole Miss. He was only allowed in the school after Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy forced the university's hand. When I was a kid, it wasn't a true holiday gathering until someone in my family told a racist joke or made an inappropriate or insulting comment about someone of a different skin color. But, of course, down in the Bible Belt, we were all Christians. All of us went to churches that taught scripture. I don't think any of us would have ever considered ourselves even slightly racist. But none of us saw the problem with letting the occasional racist joke out every once in a while. After all, they're just jokes, right? They're just words. Now, I still believe that none of my family would ever intentionally hurt or mistreat someone just because they had a different skin color. But I have seen firsthand that my family has been guilty of the sin of simply looking down on them. And it wasn't until later in life that I started to look back and realize the sin that ran in my family. And I'm also aware of the fact that from an early age, I had the seeds of that acceptable sin planted in my own heart and my own mind. But part of what makes sin so dangerous is that it's sneaky. Not all sin is clear and obvious. Sometimes it can lurk in the shadows. And we can be really good at convincing ourselves that we're not guilty of that sin. We can be really good at justifying that sin. But part of the beauty of scripture is that scripture tells us who God is. And when we open scripture and see God and all of his goodness and all of his holiness so clearly displayed, then our sin, even the sneaky sin, can be exposed and when our sin is exposed, the Holy Spirit assists us in this hard process of confession and repentance and transformation. So, again, this morning, we're going to let the light of God's Word shine on the sin of racism and see what Scripture has to say. Scripture can expose this sin where it needs to be exposed. And as a result, we can confess and repent. Where we need to confess and repent. And when we're done, I hope that we can move forward with a much more godly understanding, a much more gospel shaped understanding of our neighbors who look different than we do. And while racism may not be addressed as explicitly in Scripture as some other things, there is still plenty that the Bible has to tell us. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 starting in verse 26. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. We're going to be jumping to several different passages this morning, so get ready to follow along. But before we read in Genesis 1, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word accomplishes so many different things. You have given us your word so that we can know more about who you are. So that we can know the truth about who we are. So that we can know the truth about our world. How it began and how it works. And how it will one day come to a restoration and reconciliation. And Father, thank you that your word Isn't just examined by us, but your word examines us as we read it and your word helps us to see spots that we would be otherwise blind to your word helps us to see sins that we are sometimes willfully ignorant of. And so, Father, I pray that as we read your word, as your word shines its light on the sin of our own hearts and our own minds and even simply existing in our world. I pray that we would also see the light of your son, Jesus Christ, that the light of Christ outshines anything in this world and that the light of Christ can bring redemption and peace to anything in this world. So, Father, help us turn to your word. Help us turn to your son to deal with our sins. Thank you that you have not left us to our sins you have not left us hopeless, without deliverance, without a Lord. So, Father, be with us as we read this word this morning. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1, through 28 is one of those core scriptures that we should know by heart because it is so foundational to understanding who God created humans to be. These verses tell us that we are created in God's image. Every single one of us. Now, God created all kinds of things in the Genesis account, birds and fish and livestock, water and land. But humans are the only ones said to be created in God's image. There is an inherent value, an inherent dignity in a human being that does not exist in anything else that God created. Now, some Christians are so familiar with this teaching. We've heard it so much that we think it goes without saying. But it doesn't. That's why this verse shaped one of our church's core values. That all people are valuable in God's eyes. No matter what you look like. No matter what sin you're guilty of, no matter what you think about God, what you think about our world, whether you're young or old, rich or poor, male or female, able-bodied or disabled, if you are a human, you are of immense value in the eyes of God. And perhaps if the churches my family attended growing up spent more time in a passage like this, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that all people are created in God's image, then maybe that sin of racism wouldn't have been quite so excusable in my family. In Genesis, there is a clear distinction between humans and animals, a difference in quality. There's a clear distinction between male and female, a difference in function. But there is no distinction between colors of skin. To suggest that someone is more or less... Created in God's image simply because of the color of their skin. To suggest that someone is more or less loved by God because of their race. To suggest that someone is more or less valued to God because of their ethnicity. Is a heinous sin. And a horrific rejection of what Genesis 1 26 through 28 actually teaches about human beings. No human being is inferior To another human being. Because every single one of us. Is created in the image of God. Now jump forward to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 14. Starting in verse 31. We read there. Whoever oppresses a poor man. Insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy. Honors him. And then Proverbs chapter 17. Verse 5. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Now, you read these verses from Proverbs and you might think, well, what do these verses tell us about race? Well, technically nothing. However, there's a principle at play here that is relevant to our discussion. The Proverbs say that if you oppress or mock, or insult a person created in God's image simply because he has less money than you, you're not just attacking that person. You're attacking the God who created them. I don't think it's a stretch to apply this principle to our topic of race. If you oppress or mock or insult a person created in God's image simply because their skin is a different color than yours, then you are attacking God himself. And that is a dangerous place to be. Now, there's more that could be said from the Old Testament alone. God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 was to bless all nations through Abraham's offspring. And that certainly includes those whose skin didn't look like Abraham's. Here's the story of Hagar, the rejected suffering servant of Abraham and Sarah of African descent. God hears her cry in the wilderness and provides for her and her child. There's the story of Ruth, the Moabite, who marries into a Jewish family and is a wonderful example of faithfulness and trust in God. It's clear throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, that God does not discriminate based on race. He created every single human being in his image. He uses and blesses many different races in the Old Testament to display his glory and accomplish his purposes. And that's just the Old Testament. But the New Testament gives us plenty to think about as well. Think about the multiple stories of Jesus in the Gospels interacting with people who were not like him. In Matthew chapter 15, there's the story of the Syrophoenician woman. This woman was a Canaanite. One of Israel's greatest enemies in the Old Testament. However, after an admittedly tense conversation, Jesus commends her for her wisdom and her humility. In Luke chapter 10, there's a story of the Good Samaritan. The hero of the story. The one who shows mercy and compassion to the Jewish man dying on the side of the road. Well, the hero of the story is the last person you'd expect. The lowly Samaritan. Now, the disagreement between the Jews and the Samaritans may have been primarily religious, but there could have been some racial tension between the two groups as well. That whole parable arose when Jesus told a man to love his neighbor as himself. The man looked at Jesus and asked him who his neighbor was, which is basically another way of saying, well, Jesus, who do I actually have to love? Who do I really have to love? Well, that, of course, was the wrong question. Your neighbor, the person you're called to love, is the person created in God's image. And that includes everyone. Think about one of the most consistent problems that Paul had to deal with in his letters. The conflict between Jews and Gentiles. Again, a majority of their dispute was about religious practices. But racial differences didn't make things any easier either. As we all know, when you get a lot of different people in a small place, it can be hard to manage. It's easy to miscommunicate. It's easy to frustrate each other. It's easy to insult each other unintentionally. And yet Paul announces that through Christ, all of these people, Jews and Gentiles, are now part of the same family of God. These people who were once strangers and enemies... They're now friends, brothers and sisters, fellow servants, marked not by their flesh, but marked by the Holy Spirit. That's why we see passages like Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. The gospel reconciles us not just to God, but the gospel reconciles us to each other, even though we're all very, very different. Paul sums it up pretty well in Galatians chapter three, starting in verse twenty seven. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one In Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Verse 29 is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham, that through Abraham's family, all nations of the earth would be blessed, Jews and Gentiles alike. So all of us, regardless of race, are created in God's image. But on top of that, all of us, regardless of race, are fallen. We're all on the same playing field. We're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior and Lord. And through the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, all who believe, regardless of race, are saints in the family of God. So we see the beginning of this diverse family of God in the Old Testament, that all nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. The theme continues in the New Testament as Jews and Gentiles are saved together and brought together to the united household of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But then we see the grand finale of all this, the grand finale of God's plan for restoration and Reconciliation of a sinful world. We see it in the last book of the New Testament. The book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7 starting in verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. In the worship service of eternity, when sin, death and Satan have been defeated once and for all, when our world is no longer subject to the decay and destruction brought about by sin in the Garden of Eden, when we worship in the very presence of God the Father himself, We will be singing with fellow believers who look nothing like us. That person who looks just like you on earth, the same skin color, language, clothes, food. That person won't be worshiping with you in eternity if they reject Christ. But that person who looks nothing like you, but who does believe in Jesus, they'll be standing by your side. The bond that you have with a fellow believer in Jesus is greater than any bond of race or nationality. It's greater than any bond of blood or soil. In the big scheme of eternity, you have more in common with a fellow believer who looks nothing like you than a non-believer who looks exactly like you. So get used to being around believers in Jesus of different races. Different nationalities. Get comfortable. Learn to love each other. Because they'll be your singing partners in eternity. Now I'm sure much more could be said about this topic from the pages of scripture. And other people could say it better than me. But as we wrap up this sermon today. How do we put some of the things that we've discussed into practice? How do we actually become the kind of community that is united around the gospel? In spite of very real racial differences. Well, one suggestion is that we would confess and repent where needed. If you step back and examine yourself and find that you've been guilty of this sin of racism, whether implicitly or explicitly, I challenge you to confess that sin to yourself, confess that sin to God, confess that sin to your fellow believers and repent in the past. Churches and Christians were guilty of twisting scripture to justify the sin of slavery. Churches and Christians have sometimes taught that interracial marriage is somehow sinful, even though that is nowhere taught in the pages of the Bible. The reason I bring that up is to illustrate that historically, we Christians haven't always gotten this right. And in those cases, a healthy dose of confession and repentance would do us all a lot of good. So confess and repent where needed. Another suggestion is that we simply learn to listen to each other. I recently read a news story about an African-American man who felt unwelcome in Fishers shortly after he moved here. And Eric Moller, who worships here regularly and also serves as a Fisher City councilor, met with a man to discuss his concerns. That's a great example of listening. Now, sitting down for a meal Might not sound revolutionary, but laying down our defenses and our discomfort and our prejudices and simply hearing each other out could go a long way in bridging some of our divides. And another suggestion is that we would be willing to learn from each other. Believers of different races bring unique strengths and weaknesses to the table. We can learn from each other. We can disciple each other. We can point out blind spots to each other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German pastor and theologian, was known to love worshiping in African-American churches. He said that their singing was unlike any singing he'd ever experienced in his church. Because those people actually knew what it meant to suffer. And it gave their worship a different kind of power. The point is that all of us have unique contributions that we can make to the body of Christ. You know, we're not that far removed from some of the most horrific patterns of racism in our nation's history. In the big scheme of history, institutionalized segregation was not that long ago. The unconstitutional and unjust Japanese internment camps of World War II were not that long ago. Even slavery and the barbaric treatment of Native Native Americans was not that long ago. And with crimes this large, you can't exactly blame people for not wanting to just write it off as water under the bridge. Striving for peace and justice and understanding and mutual respect, it's not going to be quite that easy. And on top of that, many of the crimes of racism continue even if they're just a little bit less obvious. But you can't get around the fact that several weeks ago, Jewish people were scared to leave their synagogue in an American city of Charlottesville. As recently as the 1990s, David Duke, a former grand wizard of the KKK, almost became governor of a United States. Believe it or not, the sin of racism is still alive and is still kicking. But if we believers today don't want to commit the same sins of those believers before us, the ones who sometimes justified or turned a blind eye to or were simply willfully ignorant of the sin of racism. If we don't want to be like that, it will take a lot of work. It will take a willingness to openly and honestly confront sin in our own lives, our own hearts, our own minds our own churches, our own families, and confess and repent when needed. It'll take a willingness to listen to those who look different than we do and actually believe that they can teach us something. And it will take a constant reminder of the gospel and of the God who saved us through a Middle Eastern Jewish man 2,000 years ago. But if we're willing to do all of these hard things, I think we can start to look a little bit more like what Paul talked about in Ephesians. Our church can look a little bit more like a place where the gospel of Christ has visibly broken down the dividing wall of hostility between believers of different races. Our church can look a little bit more like a place where different people are truly being transformed into one new man, one united family of God. Under the lordship of Christ. You look at the big problems of our world today. And to be honest. I don't know how much we can change the societal problems that we face. But we can change our own situations. We can intentionally work to change our own church. We can submit ourselves to the authority of scripture. And the lordship of Christ on this incredibly difficult topic. It starts with us. As we close, I recently read a quote from Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr lived roughly a hundred years after Jesus, so a very long time ago. But Justin Martyr wrote that there were four primary obstacles to Christian discipleship within the church. And the four he identified were these. Number one, sexual immorality. Number two, magic. Number three, wealth. And number four, ethnic hatred. It's amazing to think that those words were written 1,900 years ago. Because they sound pretty relevant to our day and age. Those same obstacles still exist when it comes to Christian discipleship. Those are sins that we still have to confront. And we still have to wrestle with in our lives today. So I pray that we would do that. And as we close in prayer, I pray that we would start to look just a little bit more like the church Paul talked about in Ephesians, where that dividing wall has been broken. I pray that we would start to look just a little bit more like that worship service of Revelation 7, where people from different tribes and colors and languages and cultures are coming together and worshiping with one heart and one mind And one voice. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Who brings us all together. And is transforming us into one new man. So let's pray for that together. As we end this morning. Father thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Father we. We. Gather here, a hundred something people. Some of us know each other well, some of us don't. Some of us are new, some of us have been around for a long time. But anytime you have this many people together, there are bound to be differences and disagreements and things that we don't see eye to eye on. And those differences can be very real. They're not all differences that can just be wiped away and just pretend don't exist. But, Father, I pray that we would learn to love each other. I pray that when we look at people who are not believers, who are different than us, that we would remember that they are created in God's image. And as we look at people who do believe, who are different than us, not only are they created in God's image, but they are our brother and sister in Christ. They are our fellow servants in your kingdom. They are our friends and You have brought us together. Your son didn't just die so that we could be reconciled to you. Your son died so that we could be reconciled to each other. That we could show the world what it's like to be a place where dividing walls are broken and voices worship you together. So, Father, help us to be those people. Help us to be that church. I pray that your church would speak boldly and truthfully and graciously to a world that is full of sin. Racism being one of them. I pray that we Christians would have the courage to address this sin where it needs to be addressed. And wouldn't turn a blind eye to it. Wouldn't ignore it. Wouldn't justify it. So, Father, help us in this endeavor. Help us come together as brothers and sisters, as fellow servants, and your family, regardless of all the things the world tells us should separate us. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing, and then we'll transition to our closing prayer.